You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Madrid. Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Friba. I am the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am in a pretty noisy Madrid. To be precise, on the Paseo del Prado, one of Madrid's most famous boulevards with the city's most famous park, El Buen Retiro, just a block to the east, mere meters from the Prado Museum and the world's best collection of paintings by Goya and Velázquez. And this evening, where a young Belgian artist named Remco Evenepoel completed what some would call the first masterpiece of his still very young career at age 22, becoming, I'm sure we'll say this more than once tonight, the first Belgian to win a Grand Tour since Johan de Moink in 1978, the Pink Panther who won the Giro d'Italia. As I said, it is very noisy behind me. The teams are all packing up. There's a huge contingent of Colombian fans, as there always is for the last stage of the Vuelta Espana. You would think a Colombian had won the Vuelta. I think Rigoberto ran left, um, left the area about half an hour ago, but the Colombians are still chanting his name. He is the undoubted fan's favourite of this last stage of the Vuelta. The fan's favourite of our Vuelta Espana, well, it could be the man that I'm about to introduce. Joining me tonight for the last time in this Vuelta Espana, which, is, which he has helped to illuminate and decode spitting truths like cherry pits in the world-renowned cherry pit spit held every year in Eau Claire in his native Michigan. It's a man who has ridden four Vueltas a España and attended the infamous end of Vuelta a España party at least once. I know because I definitely recall seeing him downing tequila shots at one of them. <laughs> He's also a Tour de Suisse stage winner, the 2017 US National Road Race Champion, current AG2R Citroën Master Blaster, another sneaky Michigan reference in there, Stevie Wonder fans. It is the Motown Marvel, our indefatigable Detroit Piston. It is Lucky Larry Warbass. Larry, how are you doing on this fine evening? Uh, doing pretty well, though. Wish I was at the Vuelta. Looks like uh, it's a nice night over there. Larry, you would be in your element here. Um, <laughs> I can definitely picture you as the as the Movida Madrileña. It kicks into gear, and uh, well, all of the riders who have completed this Vuelta a España and a few who didn't. I think they've been visiting their teams as they prepare to disappear into the night. Well, Larry, we we knew what was going to happen today pretty much certainly as far as the general classification is concerned um, we didn't know who was going to win the final sprint and it was a bit of a well, it was a bit of a surprise result i think without further ado we should get straight to the last stage summary time trial the last resumen de la etapa contra reloj of this vuelta a españa rob hatch it's over to you one last time el resumen del día a contra reloj the stage summary time trial. And Larry, you're about to roll down the ramp for the last time. I know you have been paying fastidious attention to today's final stage and in particular the sprint finish. So I'm going to count you in. You've got 90 seconds, Larry Warbass. Off you go for one last time in this Vuelta España. Okay, so today was stage 21, the last and final stage of the Vuelta a España in 2022 uh, from Las Rosas to Madrid. 
96.7 kilometers. And yeah, it was uh, the typical procession, but I have to say we saw a pretty tight final. Uh, there was an attack by Luke Plapp and Julius Johansson in the final circuits. And I think they lasted a lot longer than anyone expected. They were caught within the last kilometer, so it was really pretty impressive. Um, and it was pretty touch and go there for a while, whether they'd get caught or not. Finally, in the sprint, Juan Sebastian Molano, who uh, was leading out Pascal Ackerman, actually held on for the win ahead of Mads Pedersen and his teammate Pascal Ackerman. So, yeah. Um, Finally, Remco caps off his Vuelta victory um, after 21 stages, two minutes and two seconds ahead of Enric Moss in second, and 4.57 ahead of Juan Ayuso in third. Um, the green jersey, the sprints jersey, uh, points jersey, was won by Mads Peterson. KOM was won by Richard Carapaz. Uh, white jersey was Remco Avenapol, the winner of the race, and the best team was UAE Team Emirates. So, yeah, that's pretty much everything. Wow, 15 seconds short of full time. Ah. Excellent performance, Larry. Not your first, not your first impeccable um, summary of this Vuelta <laughs> a España. Um, Larry, we're not going to talk too much tonight about the sprint itself, but. Give us your analysis. We've had the summary. Give us your analysis of, well, particularly an excellent lead out by UAE and the strange scenario that we sometimes see in professional cycling where the lead out man, because Sebas Molano is nominally Pascal Ackerman's lead out man, beats the main sprinter. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting because when he hit the front, um, Mads Peterson hit the front at the exact same time. And so I was like, oh, wow, like, you know, this is actually way better for Ackerman because uh, Mads hit the win too early. But remarkably, uh, Milano just seemed to have the best legs and uh, no one could come around him in the end. So he maybe had a little bit of a, a head start on Mads, but uh, in the end, he seemed to be the quickest today. And that can sometimes happen over 21 days of racing. You know, uh, the last stage of the race can always have a bit of different result in the sprint. So, yeah, it was a good sprint to watch in the end. And winds up a pretty phenomenal Vuelta a España for Team UAE. Of course, they had a stage win with Marc Soler earlier in the Vuelta. He was also the super combativo, super combativo of the Vuelta that was chosen earlier today. And they finished on the podium with Juan Ayuso, 19 years of age, the first teenager to finish on the podium of a Grand Tour, I think since 1904. And Fermin Lambo, no, he's a, he's a Belgian, isn't he? He's a Belgian. Fermin Lambo in 1904, if I'm not mistaken, Larry. Um, Larry, I said, well, it's very loud here in Madrid, and I, I can still hear chants of Rigo, Rigo. I think it's Rigo, Rigo. Certainly, as I said earlier, I'm surrounded by Colombian fans. What are your memories of this moment at La Vuelta España, which is a it's, a it's a more joyous sort of denouement, I think, than the Tour de France. You often see the Swaniers are waiting there with pizzas um, behind the finish line, and and the buses, well, they, they remain sort of pretty close to the finish line, parked up, and they turn into these sort of mobile party buses, at least for a half an hour or an hour or so um, before the teams and the riders head off, usually with their partners, to meals and then parties, the infamous party that has already been been mentioned once tonight and will be mentioned again later on what do you recall of, the, of, of these moments Larry yeah I always remembered it was a really nice uh, finish there in Madrid you know it's a fun city and I think it just kind of goes along with the whole theme of the Vuelta it's like a little more relaxed uh, than the other Grand Tours and uh, than a lot of races you know I think 
for a lot of guys, it's almost like one of their last big focuses of the season. So, you know, after 21 days of intense racing and focus, it's like one of the first times you can relax. And yeah, like you said, a lot of people, they have their partners, uh, their families around. And so, yeah, it just makes for a really nice ambiance. People are really starting to relax because, yeah, it's, it's close to the end of the season. Maybe for some guys, they'll end their season here. And uh, yeah, it's a really good time. And I always had really nice memories, especially like always with the teams I was on, we'd go to nice dinners with all of like the, you know, families or partners of all the riders and, you know, with all the staff. And it was always just a really nice time. And yeah, we'd end up, you know, usually going out after and it was really, really fun uh, finish to the race. It was, I always had really nice memories there in Madrid. Well, Larry, certainly within moments of Remco Avenapool crossing the line this afternoon or this evening, rather, I should say, the, the party was certainly cranking up in and around the Quickstep Alpha Vinyl team bus, being led, being orchestrated, I suppose, as you would expect by Patrick Lefebvre. Before anyone says anything, he was drinking Diet Coke, um, I noticed. Um, but Patrick Lefebvre, he's been a team manager for decades now. His team, well, they've swept all before them in the classics. We made a lot at the start of the World Tour about their lack of Grand Tour heritage. We mentioned the fact that I think in 20, 20 years of this current, what I consider to be the current Quickstep team's existence, Distance. They had four top five finishes, just two podium finishes in that whole time, and um, set against countless classic victories. But today, tonight, finally, they have broken their Grand Tour duck with Remco Avenapool. So, well, I made a beeline for Patrick Lefebvre and also Remco Avenapool's coach, um, Kern Pilgrim, who we heard from a few days ago at the Vuelta a España and here was their immediate reaction as I say moments after Remco had crossed the line well Patrick you did it um, I did you, nothing well, have you been nervous the last few days or no, I, I, I was never so calm I only a little bit uh, afraid that something could happen because you're never sure before finish because the circuit is beautiful such a nice city but you know after every corner there can be something happen huh? You've won so much in your career as a manager, but is this different? This is your first Grand Tour in this team. In this team, yes. In 20 years, we we constructed the team in 2003. Uh, Mr. Bacala saved us in 2010. And then, uh, yeah, you know the, the story. And will Remco be able to cope with everything that's coming his way now in Belgium? No, because he doesn't go to Belgium. He goes immediately to Sydney. Over the next few months and yeah, years, there's yeah. going to be a lot of attention. It's already good that he leaves for Sydney with uh, Soriare and Mecano. It's, uh, everybody will calm down a little bit. And Padre, last thing. Am I right? You don't want him to go to the Tour de France next year? No. Because? Well, we had a plan. And sometimes you have to follow the plan. Have a good evening, Patrick. Thank I'm you. sure you will. Well, can we spoke a few days ago about how you prepared this welter with Remco, but in your young career, still fairly young career as a coach, this must be, I guess, your proudest achievement. Um, I think so, yes. Uh, I mean, especially because this team doesn't have a, a history of doing Grand Tours, so it's, it's something for the team. It's pretty historical to, to win a Grand Tour. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a great moment. You know his body better than most people. How has he been in the last week? Um, because he's looked as though he's got stronger again. 
Yeah, I mean, he had it under control, I think. Of course, uh, the weekend before the rest day, the Saturday was a difficult moment, of course. Uh, then also you don't know how he's going to respond, uh, both physical and, and also mentally, because if you always feel you're the stronger guy and then suddenly you have to take a blow, uh, that's, uh, that's a mental thing also. Uh, and in the last week, it's, it's mainly about that. So that was for us a bit of a question mark also how he was, how he was going to handle it. Uh, I think on Sunday morning to Sierra Nevada we were all a little bit nervous. Um, but when he came through that day well, uh, especially like the first steep part of the climb when he was just relatively under control when the Rogues attacked, I think that was the moment where everybody felt okay now it's really possible. Kern, he's been racing for, well, not very long. Um, 2017, he was still a junior and only just started. The obvious assumption to make is that he can still improve quite a lot, maybe compared to other 22-year-olds. Would you agree with that? I think so, yeah. I mean, uh, it's normal that if you, uh, if you practice a sport shorter than anybody else, that you have a bit more margin to improve. Um, but at this level, you never know. I mean, it, uh, at such a high level... And, and the margins are very small compared to the others. Um, so for sure we hope there's something that he can still improve. Uh, and I think as a team you also learn from it. Uh, we don't have much experience in doing Grand Tours. Um, so I think we all learn from this also. Just how, how you approach it, how you tactically, how you handle it. Um, so I think that there's also steps that we can uh, that we can make and uh, hopefully still make a few improvements. Well, Larry, interesting to hear Patrick Lefebvre there reiterate what he said on a number of occasions in the press in recent days and in recent months. If it's up to him, and it is up to him because he's the team manager, as the the party gets even louder around <laughs> me on the Paseo de Prado, um, it is up to him. Remco Avenable will not go to the Tour de France in 2023. So Patrick says, what do you make of that? Well, I'm actually surprised by that. I would have thought like he'd for sure do it. So, um, I mean, did he say whether he should do the Giro or what, what was the reasoning? Did he, did he say anything? I, I didn't ask him any. I didn't, you know, Larry, he had a party to get to. I mean, he was on the Diet Cokes, admittedly, but there was a, there was a lovely chilled <laughs> bottle of Carver or champagne just waiting, you know, make, looking, making eyes at him just a few metres away. And I think he was in quite a, well, he was in a hurry to crack on with the celebration. So, no, we didn't get into the detail of where he's going next year, but he's not going to the Tour de France. That's the bottom line. That's the, that's the hot Daniel, take, Daniel, you didn't ask the hard-hitting questions. You're too As intimidated you by Patrick Lefebvre. <laughs> Larry, this, is, this was a fairly dubious thesis of yours early in the world, so I can say I wasn't <laughs> intimidated by Patrick Lefebvre. But as you work more in the media, Larry, you'll, you'll learn that it's all, it's all about the hot takes. The hot takes, the headline tomorrow is that Remco is not going to the tour in 2023. Uh, yeah. I don't want to hear any more on this matter, <laughs> Larry. I only want to know whether you're surprised. Um, I'm a little bit surprised, but maybe he just doesn't want to like put any pressure on him at the moment and let him enjoy this well to win. And then, you know, they'll think about the tour later, you know? There you go. There you go. And you, you of course, will be at the Tour de France next year. So, um, I hope so, so. You're, already, you're already winning. You're already, you're, oh, 
it's Richard. It's not Rigo. Sorry. Now I've now that I've actually listened to what the crowd is chanting. It's it's um, this is a, a group of Ecuadorian fans. How come they're not they ch- chanting for you? Yeah, serenading Richard Carapaz. Larry, Remco Avonapol has won the Vuelta a España. However, um, the general classification, the Mayor Rojo, the La Roja, as it's sometimes called here at the Vuelta, was not the only prize up for grabs today, tonight. The Pedala de Charme is a prize that we've awarded on the Cycling Podcast for many years now, and it rewards the rider deemed by our listeners to have conducted himself in the most charming manner um, of all of the other or of all of the riders in the race over the last three weeks it was a landslide Um, the poll was conducted or has been conducted over the last 24 hours and the clear winner was fred wright the british rider who's come close on several occasions to a stage victory didn't get that didn't get that elusive win um, was also at the centre, sort of unwittingly and um, through no fault of his own, really. He was at the centre of a bit of a controversy um, a couple of days ago when Primoz Roglic released a statement criticising his role in Roglic's abandonment of the Vuelta España. We're going to hear from Fred Wright in just a second. We're also going to hear from a rider who animated the last stage of this Vuelta, um, Luke Plapp, and he has animated us, he's animated mix zones throughout this Vuelta España. As I said um, a few days ago, a real character who I think is going to provide a lot of entertainment in the coming years and clearly had excellent, well, it looked to me as though he had excellent legs on this very difficult, um, quite sinewy Madrid circuit. So we're going to hear from Luke Plapp, Fred Wright, and then also, finally, from another rider we've heard from a lot in this Vuelta España, Luis Ángel Mate, second in the Pedalo de Charme, um, vote and a rider who's been planting trees in his native Sierra de Bermeja um, for every kilometre he's been in the break in this Vuelta Hispania. He's only managed 120 or something, but the climate change and the reforestation of that area it are issues that are very close to his heart. And um, well, he had a big smile on his face at the finish. His family was there to greet him and um, has provided great entertainment for us throughout this Vuelta Hispania. So we're going to hear from Luke Plapp. Then, in fact, we're going to hear from Luis Angel Mate and then finally from Fred Wright. This year's Vuelta Peddler de Charme. Just thought I'd earn the beer, mate. It was, oh, it's been an awesome three weeks, mate. And look, I wasn't able to get the jersey on the TV much over the last month, so made sure I gave it some airtime today. <laughs> Luke, I don't think I've ever seen a rider come over the line and get a beer in their hand as quickly as you just did. <laughs> I'm an Aussie, mate. There's no other way to do it. It'd be un Australian if I didn't. How much did you enjoy that out there today? Uh, it was uh, a very slow start, mate. And look, I've got a time trial to do in seven days, so I thought I'd better get some training in. It looks as though you're finishing this welter with great legs, though. <laughs> Complete opposite, mate. Absolutely empty, but now it was good fun. And look, it was it was a pleasure to do my first grandy. And yeah, look towards next week now. Well, Luis, you've got a big smile. You've finished this Vuelta España and you've got, uh, well, you've got some new teammates. Who are these? <laughs> For sure. That is the future. <laughs> uh, yeah, nice to be here after a lot of case, a lot of problems, a lot of uh, unfortunate, but we are happy to be here. For me, it's my 11 Vuelta finish and I'm really, really happy to be here in Madrid. Last year, Luis, you cycled home from Santiago de Compostela. How are you getting home tomorrow? I don't know because I am I am here with my two kids and will be difficult to be home by bike. But I don't know. To, to, tomorrow I will see. <laughs> and we know about your challenge to well to replant trees. I mean, how do you think it went in general? 
I think, yeah, I think it's okay because uh, a lot of people write me, uh, individual person, associations, organization, enterprise. And yeah, for me, the Vuelta was the best showcase and that is the most important. Luis, we'll see you next year for one more. Okay, thank you very much. Well, Fred, you're probably thinking about relaxing. Well, you, you've got the world coming up, but um, just tell us about the sprint first. Um, yeah, hectic, horrible stage. Like, so much stopped starting. Like, I didn't... I used my crit knowledge from... The, it's a hard circuit, the, isn't it? Being a rider in the British scene, you know, you kind of get a bit better. I guess maybe I've got a bit of an advantage with these sort of circuits, you know, like... She's got to try and float as much as possible. But it's hard, you know, with that, that hairpin bend, you, that's, that's, that's a guaranteed sprint every lap, you know, no matter where you are, so. Nah, another top 10. Kind of thought at one point I was going to come round more, but I just ain't got the speed of these flat, flat sprinter guys. Like, <laughs> maybe came out into the wind too quick. Could have waited longer, I don't know. Well, Fred, you came here three weeks ago telling us you've only really been sending for three days to look after Mikel. It's lasted a lot longer. Just sum up your World Day Spain. It's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster, I think. Yeah, yeah. You could say that again with the, uh, the Primo stuff from a few days ago. That's not really how I thought it would end, but no, nah, I think we started really positive with on, the, on the GC front and then, you know, lost a couple of guys to COVID. The kind of ambitions of the team's changed, but, you know, a bit like the tour, really. We were in every break that came maybe to the finish, we just weren't quite able to finish it off, but now nah, we can be happy with this ball. I mean, you know, it's still hard, this Grand Tour stuff. So. Well, Fred, uh, it's ending on a high note. You've been voted our Peddler de Charme. For the, I think you were voted the Peddler de Charme of the Tour de France, the most charming man in the World of España peloton. I'll give your prize to one of your one of your auxiliaries later, but well done. It's an honour. What I think is it? A, it's a mug, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that'll go on my uh, coffee machine. <laughs> Cheers. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. You can find out more about Super Sapiens at supersapiens.com. El Diario Remco, the Daily Remco. I think today was, uh, apart from uh, last Saturday, was the hottest day, uh, you know, for the head, for the legs, for the body. Because you are so close, but you still have to keep fighting, you know, it, like the pressure is almost off. And then you are really stressed in the morning, you are really uh, emotional already, because you know you are so close, the team knows they are so close. And then going into the last three kilometers, you know, that the, the team car is just mentioning that I was going to win La Vuelta, you know, the emotions just start to go all over the body, over the legs, and in the end I was not, I was not ready to sprint anymore, you know, I just wanted to enjoy the last 500 meters, and uh, yeah, what a day. 
Well, Larry, that was not Remco Evenepoel from today, the 11th of September, the last day of the Vuelta España. But yesterday, um, having finished and having been, well, not quite crowned as the champion, but knowing that he was probably going to win the Vuelta España, I just thought we'd listen to that because it's further evidence of a theme we've been talking about throughout this Vuelta España, the well, the maturity of Remco Evenepoel and how sort of in the moment he was yesterday and how honest he was about how nervous he had been throughout the day, how much stress he'd been under. We'll talk a little bit more more about Remco and as I say his his maturity and how that's really emerged throughout this world at later on but Larry it is time to sum things up and well, and I'd like to get your opinion, first of all, about how entertaining this Vuelta a España has been. Um, everyone is waiting with bated breath for your, not my, your wine glass rating. And has it been any good, this oh. Vuelta a España, Larry? I mean, there have been some good days, but I don't know if overall I could say it was super exciting. You know, I think the problem is this year we got a really exciting tour. Um, it was great to watch. And I don't know, I think like, in the end, in the Vuelta, we didn't get like the crazy battle like we had in the tour and, uh, you know, the constant, constant attacks um, like we saw in July. And so I think, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to say it was not as uh, exciting a Grand Tour as, as we saw in July um, and perhaps a slightly less entertaining Vuelta than we've seen in the past. And I mean, part of that probably was due to Roglic crashing out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was still a great race, but I guess it wasn't super exciting to watch um, like it sometimes has been in the past. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a question that concerns us spectators, where people are usually watching rather than riding much more than it does you as racers. But do you ever have any conception when you're in a race of how entertaining it is or it isn't? I mean, I will say sometimes like, when you're in the race and you're like, oh, God, this sucks. You're like, well, it's probably pretty good to watch at least. Or, or you know, like when you when you like in Tirano and uh, Pogachar and uh, Vanderpol attack, you know, like 100 Ks to go. You're like, what the hell are they doing? But you're like, wow, I bet I bet this is a sweet race to watch on TV, you know. Uh, so it does occasionally cross uh, the mind but it's not something i think people are thinking about actively as they're racing you know like oh i bet i'm gonna try to make the race exciting right now that's <laughs> not really something uh, that's really running through our heads but i mean the, the two instinct the instinct of the spectator and the instinct of the rider they almost work perfectly sort of against each other cross yeah, purposes yeah. don't they i mean true, a boring true. race for the spectator is a great race it's great fun to be riding especially in a <laughs> well, stage race you know those, those know. quiet days when, I mean, if when you've got a Kern really farmer good, down the road and yeah. then and a Burgos Biaccia no disrespect to them but that's great news for you guys isn't it well it depends on the day and, and honestly I, I don't think we really enjoy those like super boring slow days you know like I have to say UAE tour is pretty miserable for a lot of the riders okay there's some nice stages in UAE tour but the dead flat sprint stages where like you know, you're like begging guys to go in the breakaway. Th those We don't like those days either. You know, it's like w actually a lot of guys are like, you know, we'd rather be racing hard, you know. Um, but maybe there's a nice middle ground between too hard and not hard enough. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, some exciting races we actually do enjoy. Well, Larry, talking about the route, or we will talk 
about the route in a second, but talking about the, the decor, the backdrop, the scenery, the last day of the Vuelta is one that I enjoy. I, I think that it does have a certain grandeur about it, um, finishing on the Paseo del Prado. It's, it, it could be compared to finishing on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. I mean, I've just decanted as the crowd disperses a couple of blocks um, away from the Prado, where the finish was, to the Puerta de Alcalá, Puerta, and that's gate, not uh, mountain pass. Um, this is a sort of monumental gate which you could compare to the Arc de Triomphe, and also the scene of a notable performance by Katy Perry in the N- MTV Music Awards in 2010. Um, and it's a it's a beautiful part of town. It's a bit of a sort of well, I, w- I would suggest this is one of Madrid's urban catwalks, the kind of place where you might bump into Brian Nygaard or I don't know, maybe maybe Larry Warbass with a sweat. Slung over his shoulder and that <laughs> that effortless air of straight off the yacht confidence that we talked about earlier in the welter. But um, the last stage of the welter, do you enjoy that? Um, uh, yeah, I think you know. I think for the most part, uh, we enjoyed it until the circuit. But actually, the circuit is quite hard. Um, I don't know if it's still the same circuit than the last couple times it I is. did it. It is. It is. Yeah. They reverted so, to the old one. Yeah. Okay. There's like, yeah, I heard that they changed it for a bit. So there's, you know, like a little bit of a hill in it, and then. The fact that there's these, like, you know, what do you call like the Australian hot dog crits, you know, like it's like a total 180 switchback, like at the end of each side of like the big boulevard. That's actually like super hard because then you have this crazy sprint out of it at the bottom before like the finishing straight. It's like slightly uphill. So actually, uh, it's a pretty hard circuit. And, um, you know, I know a lot of guys probably went out uh, last night. and. Oh, really? Um, Does that still happen? Does that yeah, still that happen? still happens. I mean, I might have seen an Instagram post or two uh, let's, that, that, you know, but, uh, but yeah, let, I mean, that still happens a little bit. Let's talk about the mechanisms of that. Um, you can tell that I'm very interested in this. Um, <laughs> how would one go about that? Do you ask for permission from the director of sport TV? Is it a sort of furtive... Um, descent down the hotel, down the back entrance of the hotel at two in the morning to the hotel bar, or is it, I don't know, a nightclub? What is it? How do you do it? Yeah, I mean, I would say probably guys would have, like, a drink on the bus, and then it kind of starts there after the stage, you know. Uh, Maybe they have another drink at dinner or two, and then, you know, maybe one or two guys are uh, motivated to, uh, you know, go a little bit further, and then, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes some guys, one thing leads to another and then guys end up at the club or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, there's not very many races a year that would happen. That's maybe like at the tour in the Vuelta, you know? Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely been stories of guys like going out pretty big the night before the last, uh, last day. Not too long ago, Larry, I think you were maybe even in that Vuelta España. I think it was 2017 when Odd Christian Eiking of Groupama got sent home on the last oh, morning. You know, because he'd I mean, been I, out. I, I, I crashed out, but actually I was in altitude with Odd this year and he explained the whole story to me, uh, which was a pretty funny story coming from him. Regale us with the highlights if you can, Larry. Well, I mean, all, all I remember, like the funniest part of it was like everyone kind of knew what was happening except for him because his French wasn't that good. And so they were on the bus and like he thought that like the directors were going to like, you know, I don't know, be proud of him for coming back so like late in the morning, whatever. And in the end, they're on the bus before the start and they didn't even <laughs> let him like finish the race. You know, they didn't let him start or something. And uh, and, and then 
there were like some other guys that were kind of like throwing him under the bus, like on the team or whatever. Like, I can't believe you would do that. That's so unprofessional. And here he, th- he thought like he was like proud of himself, you know, so it was kind of a funny story. And then, yeah, they wouldn't even let him start the last stage, which, uh, yeah, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty brutal. But, but yeah. Well, more on nocturnal escapades of the Vuelta España later. Let's get back to the serious business, Larry. And we were about to discuss the route. Um, it's occurred to me during this Vuelta, and over the last two or three years, I- I've sensed on the part of the organisation, and particularly the race director, Javier Guillén, that he's been stung by criticism of the route, and particularly this of this phase, probably a decade-long phase that the Vuelta had, where its main USP, its main distinctive feature was these very steep, often short finishes, um, what they called in Spain the Cuesta de Cabras, the goat tracks, and they really dialed that back. And they've dialed it back for two or three years now, but particularly this year, we had what has been referred to by some as a bit of a decaffeinated final week. I know for the guys riding, um, it won't have felt like that, and I know that the race is made by the riders, and it depends how hard it's raced, and it has been raced very hard this last week but what do you what have you made of the route i like how much you qualified what you were just saying like four four different ways but um this is not my first this is not my first rodeo yeah i know that probably piss off a lot of guys but um yeah i actually yeah i have to say i do like um especially watching all the muros and stuff i think they make for really exciting finishes um but yeah, it is really hard to say when you're not in the race. Um, I'm sure I'm sure it was super hard this week. But, uh, you know, everyone's dead starting the third week of a Grand Tour. And it's just kind of like, yeah, the battle of sort of dead guys. And um, so, you know, whether it wasn't... I mean, if it wasn't super exciting, that doesn't mean it wasn't hard um, for the riders. And maybe it's good to have, like somewhat saner stages um for for the guys in the bunch but i guess um for the show uh maybe it's more exciting to have the short steep finishes and you know some of these walls and stuff but but yeah i mean i guess they've got to try something different every once in a while and um yeah maybe they'll revert back to the way they used to do it before um i guess we'll see Uh, at the risk of being a turkey voting for christmas if you were a race organiser, Larry, and your agenda, your priority was to maximise entertainment levels, what would be the tweak that you would make that could apply to all three Grand Tours? Um, that's tough. Ah. You know, it's, it's tough for me because I know that... Um, you know, crazy hard mount stages, they make for great watching. You know, like the Col de Granon stage in the Tour de France this year, that was amazing to watch. But at the same time, you know, the one thing that I think has saddened me, and not not as a rider because I'm not a sprinter, but like we've really not, se- we've seen a very large decrease in the number of sprints and the number of time trials. And, you know, it's kind of just gone all into this like... Um, you know, crazy hard mountain stages and climbing heavy uh, races just because, like, they're better to watch, right? You know, I think it's really important for us to keep things like sprint stages and time trials and team time trials because, like, I don't know, it's part of the sport. But but I, I guess if I was just going for pure excitement and stages to watch, they'd probably be short, pretty hard mountain stages. Um... You know, maybe 
actually more with shorter climbs, not just like a ton of super long climbs, because like when you have shorter climbs, there's a lot more guys sort of in the race and a lot more things can happen. You know, it, it makes for more active racing because if you have just super long mountains, you know, 20, 30 plus minute climbs, uh, you know, it really eliminates like the majority of the bunch, you know, maybe just like the top 10% um, can make it in the group on those climbs. Whereas like, um, say you have like 5k climbs, stuff like that, even shorter, two, 3k climbs makes for a mix of guys that can compete, you know, cause climbers can compete, but also punchy, like classics kind of guys can be there too. So I would say like those are some of the most exciting stages uh, in Grand Tours and other stage races. So maybe a few more of those um, stages, you know, I think like in the Giro this year, there was like that Milano Torino sort of stage, um, yes. which was pretty that was the exciting best stage to of, watch. Yeah, it was the best stage. It was the Turin circuit won by Simon Yates. That was the best stage of the Giro, to be honest, in terms of yeah. intensity of entertainment. And, and you know, they, okay, I mean, they're not like uh, short climbs, but they're they're not like super long either. So you know, there's just more guys in the race. It can be more open and uh, it makes for more exciting racing. To sort of, well, flip the question slightly or come at this, this issue of entertainment from a different angle. Um, I'm curious, as a rider, would you prefer there not to be wall-to-wall TV coverage start to finish? Because that's another thing that we have heard and we've noticed over the last few years has made racing more exciting, but probably doesn't particularly please a lot of riders because it has amped up the intensity uh you know i don't really know i mean i wouldn't say that for us it's never something we think about um in terms of like i think the it way has made a difference race. though larry i think really? it has made a difference okay. yeah i think i think you can chart a change in racing you you can pinpoint it to i mean i can't remember what the first year was when they had full stages of the Tour de France routinely broadcast in most countries but I think there's a there's a pretty strong correlation between a ch- change in racing more entertaining racing and that happening yeah but is that just correlation or is that causation you know like I, I don't know if uh you know like I mean it might just have coincided with something else that happened at the same time you know um, do you know what it is Larry you're all vain you're all vain yeah, and you want to be yeah, on TV. Yeah, want to be on TV. I mean, is. surely there are some people that, like, that's really important. Like, let's get on TV or whatever. But I don't think that's, like, motivating guys to, you know, race more exciting uh, just because there's TV on. Okay, okay. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't say I've ever gone into a race and like, oh, there's TV all day today. I'm going to attack from the gun, you know? Like, it's like, well, I'm going to maybe attack from the gun because it's a good day for the breakaway and I want to try to win the stage, you know? It's not like... Uh, Let's try to get on TV a bunch, you know? Okay, okay. But, well, Larry, but we're going to have a, I mean, a few some more... Guys, sorry. We're going to have a few more... Well, specific questions about Remco Avenapool and some of the other major protagonists in this World Espanya in our third part this evening. But generally, just remind me, were you in the, were you in the camp of the Remco skeptics or the Remco acolytes before this World Espanya? Have you been surprised by what he's managed to achieve in the last three weeks? Um, I was kind of like in the middle. Uh, So, you know, I think it was just kind of one of those things. It's like, we've seen him do so many impressive things that in the end, I was like, I would write nothing off with him. You know, like nothing is impossible for Remco is kind of how I felt, you know. Um, But at the same time, I was like, okay, you know, he's still young. So, you know, I don't think we can like be 100% sure he'll be able to 
you know, put up with everything and get through three weeks, like with the same form uh, that he had at the start. But surely enough, uh, he was able to, and that was really impressive. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, uh, now we will expect sort of the same from now on, you know, in the future um, in Grand Tours. So we knew he could smash one-day races. We knew he could smash one-week races. And now we see that he can smash Grand Tours. So uh, it was pretty impressive. El ritmo de la vuelta. Rhythm of the Welter. This is the last installment of El Ritmo de la Vuelta, our ham-fisted excavation of La Vuelta España's mortifying vinyl collection, remembering the race's official song since 1978, ahead of a night when Stroop Waffles will spin on turntables and Patrick Lefebvre's attempts to revive the heady days and giddy dawns of 1980s Movida Madrileña with his glamrock reimagining of Despacito, will, alas, end in tears, failure and possibly a short custodial sentence. Tonight, Larry, I thought we should end this wild ride that we've shared over the last three weeks by going back three weeks to the start of this 2022 Vuelta España. The official song this year has been Come On, Come On by Lorena Medina, The Inner Kids and Sophie Francis. Lorena Medina is a Mexican-born model and singer who briefly enjoyed fame in the United Kingdom by dating reality TV star Joey Essex. Medina told The Sun that she dumped Essex. Is that his real name? Surely not. I don't know. I'm not well-versed enough in reality TV to know. She dumped him on a beach early in 2020 when he was pictured one morning leaving the home of another pop star, Rita Ora. Sophie Francis, who provided the beats for the song, is apparently one of the Netherlands' most popular DJs and, like Mariana Voss, was born in Sir Togenbosch, where stage two of the Welter started. By then, Robert Haysink was in the red jersey and he'd be one of four different Jumbo Visma riders to wear it on consecutive stages, the others being Mike Turnison, Eduardo Raffini, and then on the race's return to Spain, Primoz Roglic. This incidentally continued Roglic's run of wearing the leader's jersey in every stage race that he has competed, no, sorry, completed, and all that he has not except the 2021 and 2022 Tours de France since July 2018 and that year's tour. Unfortunately for him, the first hint that this welter wouldn't end with Rog's fourth straight victory came as early as stage six, the Pico Hano, which was won by Jay Vine, but lit up through the dense fog of a Cantabrian peace super by Remco Evenepoel. He gained more than a minute on Roglic and took the race lead. To this, Evenepoel added another minute on stage nine to Les Praeres and after the rest day, 48 seconds in the Costa Blanca time trial. Evenepoel now seemed unstoppable, except perhaps by COVID, which took Pavel Sivakov and Simon Yates out of the top 10 and indeed out of the race before stage 11. Also in the second week, Caden Groves took the first Grand Tour stage win of his career, as did Tymon Aronsman, while Richard Carapaz pocketed the first and second of what would finally turn into a hat-trick of summit finish victories yesterday. In the GC battle, Roglic had begun to rally in the mountains of Andalusia, but his revival ended abruptly with a crash in Tomares. 
and he claimed a reckless sprint by Fred Wright. As a GC contest, hindsight at hand, we can say now that the battle for La Roja effectively ended there, just as the Vuelta actually finished this afternoon with Mads Pedersen in green, Richard Carapaz in polka dots and UAE taking the team classification, not least thanks to Juan Ayuso, only the second teenager in history to finish on the podium of a Grand Tour and third overall behind Enric Mas. It's been a long three weeks, Larry. Um, I return to civilian life tomorrow. I know that you're amping up your training, champing at the bit to get back to racing, but this is my last race of the season. So a bit of weariness, a bit of fatigue, I think um, think you'll allow me that. Larry, this part tonight, part three, is going to be a quick fire round in which we're going to sum up or we're going to... We're going to hold forth on some of the key talking points of this Vuelta Espana, or rather you are. Um, are you ready, Larry? I think I've got about 10 or 11 questions for you here. I'm ready. You don't have to reply in one word or even one sentence, but let's keep it brief, Larry, okay? Okay, I'll try. The, the first, I'm not always so good at that, but we'll, we'll go for it. The first question I will ask you tonight, Larry Warbass, is, is Remco Evenepoel, Primoz Roglic, Jonas Vingegaard, and Tadej Pogacar now cycling's big four or at least Grand Tour stage racing's big four yeah I definitely have to say uh, GC guy big four absolutely I think those guys are probably on a level above uh, almost everyone else is that based on a read you've got or what you've heard and what you've seen of Remco's numbers well I mean you just see the way he's won some races this year Um, you know like when he's on, like, he is insane, you know? Like, uh, at San Sebastian, he was untouchable. You know, obviously here at this Vuelta, on certain stages, he was untouchable. And, uh, yeah, in other races, you know, one-week races, he's been untouchable as well. So um, I think we can easily add him to uh, those other three guys. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, if you think about Vingegaard is like, He's not the entire year. He he's not uh, maybe winning like Pogacar is, but uh, but yeah, I'd still consider those four guys the big four. In that light, Larry. Next question: Do Quickstep need to pivot and start signing climbers, preferably well in the next few weeks? I'm not sure they can. I'm not sure they've got enough spots on their roster. But do they need to change in nature? I mean, I don't think they need to totally change in nature, but it can't hurt to add a few more like top level climbers. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe their roster is full. Maybe they have one or two places. But uh, if they have one or two places, I think, you know, Remco deserves to have, um, you know, one or two really, really high level climbers at his service. Um, you know, it's like UAE signed a million uh I guess top level, essentially leaders to be domestiques. And uh, I think Quickstep could probably use a bit of the same. I mean, they have a really strong team. They have really good guys. I mean, they have definitely everything. Just maybe they miss one or two like really, really good climbing domestiques. There's a very reliable American climbing domestique at AG2R, Citroën, with a win- yeah, yeah. W- winning smile, great podcasting voice, um, but he also has a contract for 2023. So um, you, are, you, yeah. are, you are not an option at present, Larry. Um, Larry. No, no. Third question, with my tongue very much wedged in my cheek. Uh, so should Enric Mass attack more? <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing is, um, I just... 
I think it's a lot easier to say someone should attack more than actually uh, being capable of attacking. You know, no, really? If, really? If, if, if he was... If he was capable of it, I think he would have. Um, you know, I think he's a little bit more of a diesel than, uh, you know, the guys like uh, Pogachar or Remco, you know. He's not the guy who has that insane kick and sprint and acceleration. And so, you know, I think, you know, if he's going to attack, it's like a slow wind up, you know. And like, uh, I just don't think, uh, you know, he's not capable of attacking in the same way those guys are. Um, and so I think... Yeah, it's hard, hard, uh, hard for him to do those kind of attacks because I just don't think that's his. Uh, you know, I don't think it's in his physiological capabilities to attack it like you know, bazillion watts like Remco or something like that. Wow, this is shocking. I was always under the impression <laughs> that professional cyclists could, could attack at will, um, yeah. and just decided and just opted not to. Larry, fourth, fourth question, an interesting one, an interesting one. Does Richard Carapaz leave this Vuelta diminished or aggrandized with his sort of status elevated as a GC contender? Oh, as a GC contender. I mean, to be honest, can, can, can we just say he doesn't necessarily go up or go down, but kind of stays the same? Because it was pretty impressive. Uh, his, his level of climbing, obviously, uh, was very high. You don't win three stages in a Grand Tour without having that level. So um, I would say his Grand Tour pedigree uh, stays the same in terms of GC. I mean, he's already signed a contract for next year with EF Education, Easy Post, but also economically, I was so pondering this question, and I would suggest that economically his, his value is probably or would would be similar to what it was at the start of the Vuelta Espana. I, I don't think it's really moved. Yeah, which, I, I definitely think it's the same. Yeah, which seems, I mean, it seems almost unfair to say when a guy's won three mountain stages, but such is, such is life when you're expected to contend for general classification, the victory, and, and you don't end up doing that. Larry, talking of general classification contenders, I'm going to ask you, has Ben O'Connor had a good Vuelta? Ben O'Connor, of course, your teammate at Egitoire Citroën. But first, let's hear what Ben O'Connor himself thinks. I put the question to him yesterday morning for stage 20. Ben, generally, if I'd offered you the Vuelta you've had before the race, would you have signed for it? Probably, yeah. I've, I wanted a little bit more when I first came, but I actually just wasn't really good enough in the first half. So I think like all Grand Tours, you more or less finish where you deserve. And I think I'm sitting kind of where I deserve to sit. What's been the most pleasing aspect of it from your point of view? Time trial was really good, actually. So I'd say maybe the time trial I'd be more most stoked about. And also, it's so much less stressful than the tour. So I've actually enjoyed it a lot more. <laughs> well, Larry, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'd say his uh, appraisal was pretty accurate. You know, I think um, I think he has to be pretty content with eighth place because he definitely didn't approach the Vuelta in the same way he approached the Tour de France. You know, it's like the whole year was building up to the Tour, building up to the Tour, building up to the Tour. And, you know, he went all in for that. And then, unfortunately, it kind of unraveled. Um, and so... I don't think he really ever had it in his mind. He was always going to come to the Vuelta, but he was going to come for stages. So he wasn't really prepared to give it 110% in the preparation uh, to go for the GC, you know. So, you know, he, he had to sort of like reset after the tour, um, you know, which that took a bit of time. He went on like a little vacation. Um, 
And, you know, I think he kind of like slowly started to focus on the Vuelta, but it was probably at maybe 80% of the preparation he did hang in the on. tour. And I, hang, yeah. hang on, Larry. You, you before, I remember at the start of the Vuelta, I distinctly remember you telling us how he'd gone all in. Now you're talking about all the holidays he took. Wow. Did I in say the run-up to the Vuelta? Yeah, you uh, said that well, he was he was absolutely zinging, pinging. He well, was he was out. pumped for sure. He was motivated, but but I, I just think he probably didn't have the exact same motivation as uh, the Tour de France, you know. Okay. You might have to. We might have to go back and re-listen to what I said before. But obviously, I have to support him, uh, you know, in the lead-up because, uh, yeah. No, but, I mean, but I don't know. And for, I, I for, think. Sorry. Sorry. As was, I think he would admit you know, himself that like he didn't have the same um, preparation as he did before the Tour de France. And so I think he has to be pretty happy with eighth place because like uh, it's still a really great ride. Yeah, for what it's worth, I think it's a, re- it's a real step forward for him. I mean, we've seen many guys over the past few years have one brilliant Grand Tour result as he did in the Tour de France last year and then really struggle to even finish in the top 10 thereafter. And um yeah, I think this takes him forward. Uh, takes him. This is a step forward for him in his career, would be my opinion. Um, Larry, next question. Who will win more Grand Tours? Uh, Carlos Rodriguez, Sugarman, or Juan Ayuso? I'd probably have to say Juan Ayuso because he seems like a little bit more of a killer than Carlos Rodriguez. Um, so I'd probably go with Juan Ayuso. Yeah, I would go along with that. Um, Carlos Rodriguez is, well, is it a disposition very similar to yours, Larry. Um, yeah, seems like, nice. seems, like a, <laughs> seems like a lovely fan. Probably will probably be appearing on will probably be appearing on the cycling podcast in about eight years as my co-host. Um, Larry, should next question? Should the UCI just scrap the relegation thing right now? We've heard that there are teams um, which. Are, will have protested and are, they've either threatened legal action or will be undertaking, undertaking legal action and it may be that this much trumpeted, much talked about relegation system whereby two current World Tour teams will lose their licence at the end of the season, that will not happen. Um, after lots and lots of teeth gnashing and, and, and teams taking all sorts of special measures to try to escape relegation, um, it may be that there is no relegation. Should the UCI just hold their hands up now and say, look, this was a bad idea? I mean, I think they kind of have to stick to their guns, you know? They put this in place uh, years ago, and I mean, I think for them, they, they, they need to commit to it. I mean, maybe they'll lose the legal battle, and then, you know, uh, it is what it is. But, uh, you know, if, if they thought it was going to come down to this, uh, and then just throw it out at the end because, like, you know, teams might lose their license. That kind of goes against the whole idea of it in the first place. So, you know, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, I think I think the UCI needs to stick to their guns uh, just because, like, they made a rule. And every time they make a rule, they can't just turn it over if it's, like, not convenient, you know? So um, whether it's good or bad, you know, I'm not, like, I wouldn't say I have, like, a super big opinion either way, but, like, uh, I think it's dangerous if they just, like throw out the rule that they made three years ago, you know, and so many teams like focused on, you know, points for three years and then all of a sudden they go, oh, actually, never mind. It didn't matter at all. So. Larry, next question. Should obligatory COVID testing stop for professional cyclists 
riding UCI races? Uh, I, I don't think it should stop um, because, you know, I don't want to go to a race and then, like, one of my teammates or me rocks up with COVID unknowingly, you know? Like, um, you know, if you're motivated to a race and you have maybe a small sniffle or a light cough or something, you're going to be, oh, whatever, it's nothing. Like, you know, I want to go, I want to go do this race. I've trained hard. I'm ready. Um, you know, without maybe thinking twice about the consequences and, you know, you can get a lot of people sick and, you know, still people can have like long-term side effects from this, uh, disease or whatever sickness. Um, and so, I mean, I still think we should take the precautions. We, we should do the testing and, you know, it's annoying. It's a hassle, but I still think it's an important thing to do because, um, yeah, we don't want everyone getting sick, you know? It's like, uh, you saw even in Tour de Suisse, for example, like almost everyone got sick, but, you know, if if we didn't do this testing, maybe at every race we did, it'd be like that. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm still for like continuing COVID testing, even if it's annoying. Okay, Larry, last three, let's pick up the pace. Would Pog, would Tadej Pogacar have won the Tour with the Marc Soler we've seen at the Vuelta a España? Also, I should add, Marc Soler has been voted the Super Combativo or whatever the equivalent is in the Vuelta a España. Yeah. Um, would he have won the tour with the Marc Soler we've seen here and Joao Almeida, who of course wasn't picked for the tour for UAE? Uh, I don't think he would have. I, I still think Vingo would have won. Um, but maybe it would have been a little bit closer. I don't know. I don't know. That's a hard one, to be honest. Like, uh, maybe on that Col de Granon stage, maybe he would have been, like, a little calmer if he had, like, a couple teammates around him and he wouldn't have followed so many attacks. Um, but I I'm don't know. Sure. It's hard I'm to not, say. I'm, I'm not sure how being in the presence of Mark Soler would any would ever make anyone calmer. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But we, <laughs> but we value your opinion nonetheless. Larry, two more. First one. Who will be missed more in the peloton, Alejandro Valverde or Vincenzo Nibali, both of whom are riding their last Grand Tour here at the Vuelta, or have ridden? Uh, I would definitely say Valverde, you know. I think he's, like, um, still, even if he didn't win as many Grand Tours and stuff, I still think he's sort of generally the more admired rider uh, in the bunch. Mm. And I think more approachable, I would, yeah, I would that, guess you would also too. agree. Yeah, yeah. Last I don't want to make any more enemies, so... <laughs> Last question, Larry. I can only imagine how your WhatsApp has been lighting up over the last three weeks. Yeah, messages yeah. from people you've never heard, heard from before. Um, Larry, last question. Has Larry Warbass enjoyed being an almost full-time podcaster at the Vuelta España? He has, yeah. I really did enjoy this. Um, you know, it's funny because people were asking me, you know, how it was. And I was like, you know, to be honest, it's kind of like you just, like, call up a buddy and shoot about the race for an hour you know which is something i enjoy doing so uh so yeah it's actually been pretty fun uh i have enjoyed it and it's been a nice uh, addition to my days after training every day excellent excellent we've enjoyed having you very much larry well larry this is the end of well we're getting towards the end of part three this is the point in the episode when we traditionally go to our encuentro del dia our meeting of the day we're going to return to the main topic of the day, which is Remco Evenepoel and his victory in the Vuelta a España, the first Belgian to win a Grand Tour for 44 years, of course, as discussed yesterday. And the last was Johan de Munch in the 1978 Giro d'Italia, the Pink Panther. 
on Remco Vanderpool, as already discussed, we've we've spoken at length about how he's impressed us, how he's changed over the last 12 months, particularly in his dealings with the press. Well, I thought it'd be interesting to get the viewpoint of someone who has been covering Remco Evenepoel for a Belgian newspaper. So our Encuentro del Día today is with Het Newsblad's, not just cycling and welter correspondent here, but their Remco Evenepoel correspondent. His name is Jan-Peter de Vliga and I spoke to him about Remco today. Let's go to the Encuentro del Día. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Jan Peter, the Vlieger, the Remco correspondent for Het Nieuwsblad, Belgium's biggest newspaper. It is Belgium's biggest newspaper, isn't it? We'll say that for the purposes of this podcast. Jan Peter, you've been here covering Remco, covering the world for the last three weeks. Well, first of all, tell me where you've just been. You've been at the start, and what was your assignment at the start? Yeah, I was just at the at the start at the Las Rosas, which is a bit further out of Madrid than I anticipated. So the drive there was quite hectic, and then I had to interview Team Remco. So everybody who was involved slightly or or uh, a lot with what he, what he was doing the last uh, three weeks, I had to interview them, like speed interviews, one minute interview from the bus driver to the soigneur to the mechanic. So I spoke to I think uh, 21 people this more this just now. What was the best quote? Um, for Newsblad, maybe the best quote came from uh, Kenny Latoma, who is the mechanic of uh, Remco. And he was describing a certain stage where um, he had to go to the toilet, but he was in the, in the team car number one, so there was no time for them to, uh, to stop. And uh, he had to use a bidon. And he said it happened once before in his career, and just when it, I think it was in Tour of California, just when he was doing his business. I'm not going to ask any more details about what kind of business it was, but go on. Just then a rider had a flat tire and came to the car. So, okay, he was hoping that this wouldn't happen with Remco. JP, well, we're in the press room now. We're going to go back out to the finish line shortly and we're going to see the coronation. We're going to see the the grand finale. Um, But I guess today you'll be looking back over, not just the Vuelta Espana, but you'll be looking back over Remco Avenepoel's short career You've followed him for a while. We've all remarked on how, how mature he's been at this Vuelta España. He's not been the way we expected him to be here. We thought he would be sort of temperamental, volatile. Um, just talk to me a little bit about the development you've seen in him, particularly over the last three weeks. Yeah, I think it's undeniable that, that he uh, evolved a lot. And I would say from the start, to the fi- from the start of this Vuelta, he, he seemed a lot more mature and a lot more composed in his dealings with, uh, with the media. Only last year, uh, during the Giro, it was quite a toxic or, uh, or a bit of a hostile relationship even. And I think in this Vuelta, he's been beyond any reproach. Uh, he's been, uh, What's caused that? What's changed? I think it's very simple. You, he was doing very well. He's doing very well in this world, and it wasn't going his way in the Giro. Although that may be an oversimplification, because in the first ten days he was like in second position in the Giro, and already then the relationship was very difficult. But I think he's feeling a lot better about himself. It's like a life goal of his to to become. Uh, or, or to reach the top level in sports. Uh, it was his ambition in football that it became in his, his ambition in cycling. And I think it's a, a big relief for him that he's finally there where he always wanted to be from a very young age. We, non-Belgians, fear for him mainly because of you guys, mainly because of the Belgian press and the level of intensity, well, the intensity of the, of the coverage of cycling and the coverage of 
well, the first Belgian Grand Tour winner for 44 years. He was already at the centre of attention. The spotlights are going to be even brighter. How's he going to cope with it? Um, I think the amount of focus that he has been under is already quite large and has been quite large ever since he, he won uh, two world titles in the, at the juniors in, uh, in Innsbruck. So I don't know if, this, if it will go up another, another level, certainly for the, for the next month or so, because as you said, uh, first Belgian Grand Tour winner in 44 years, that's for sure a very big thing in Belgium. But I think like, the season will end and it might, it might uh, sl- slow down a little bit. I think the team has learned a lot in how to deal with the media. Uh, the, the Giro has been a very big lesson for them. They said so themselves. And... I think Remco better understands what, what, what we expect from him or, or what he can expect from us. So I don't think that the, relation, the relationship will become as difficult as it was in the past. He seemed to enjoy it on this Vuelta España. He also seems to know that he's good at it. That's my impression. That's my impression as well. Um, it's been suggested that he, he's been through some media training as a, as a footballer and he has the, 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 the natural skills of a footballer when dealing with the media. Might be so, but I think he, he, enjoys, he enjoys it to a certain extent where, where he knows what's coming and he knows how uh, uh, to behave himself in a, in a, in a mixed zone. And all. He knows that quite well. But if you catch him off guard with, with like a, a question, then uh, you might be surprised by the reaction. Negatively. Well, speaking from my personal experience, I, I've asked him in, during a press conference about his relationship with Wout van Aert. He didn't like that very much. That's question. He made it very clear to me that he didn't like it. But that's, that's just one question out of, I don't know, 150 we've asked him. So uh, that's... It's a, a reaction that would be fairly typical of a lot of riders, you know, being put on the spot in a press conference. Maybe if you'd you know, been a one-on-one interview, then you might have got a different reaction. But yeah, we, we've all seen that. We've all seen that with many riders over the years. JP, you've got to go. You've got, I don't know how many pieces you've got to write today. I shudder to think how many pieces you've got to write. The press room beckons. However, before you go, I'm just going to ask you, what's been your personal highlight of the Vuelta? Is this your first full Vuelta? Yeah, yes, it is. It personal is. highlight? My personal highlight? Um, I spent like... A, not a day, but uh, like four hours or so with uh, Remco Zevenepoel's parents on, um, I think it was Saturday's stage. No, it wasn't. Friday. Friday stage, where we walked up the, the final climb together and I could interview them. And, well, they were like super friendly, super generous with their time. And I think the article was quite okay that came out of that. So that was my, my personal highlight. You see, Belgian journalists are all cuddly after all. <laughs> Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Science in Sport have a discount code for all cycling podcast listeners. As I'm sure you know, it gives 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com and the code is SISCP25. de mañana la cena de ayer tomorrow's stage yesterday's food 
Well, Larry, la cena de ayer in Madrid. Uh, I actually, I actually finished in style last night. Almost finished in style. We've got one more meal ahead of us this evening. But I had some arroz melozo, which is kind of a risotto. I'm not going to call it a risotto because one should never eat risotto outside of Italy. Um, arroz meloso with um, setas, that's mushrooms, and trufas, truffle black truffle one of the culinary highlights of this Vuelta a España which has not really scaled the heights of other Grand Tours certainly not Giri d'Italia and we've drunk very well not a lot I should add to the listeners hmm. for those who who might be wondering or might be concerned about my alcohol intake alcohol gets talked about a lot on the cycling podcast but I've not been consuming very much but it's been good what I have been consuming a lot of nice Riojas a lot of nice uh, Ribera de Duero a bit of Bierzo and um, and a few other things as well Larry no stage tomorrow but what are you going to be doing tomorrow um, I'm going to be returning to civilian life in Berlin but what are you going to be doing tomorrow uh, I'll probably be doing a pretty solid training ride so four hours with efforts tomorrow and then four probably hours. just chilling yeah Let- and how are the next how are the next two or three weeks looking for you Larry we know that you injured your well you broke your pelvis didn't I you? did your pelvic yeah. bone yeah, pelvis. At yeah, the Tour de Wallonie. Exactly. Uh, Tour de, yeah, and that was remind me of the date of that. Was that late July? Uh, no, that was like early August. So I'm pretty sure. Okay. I can't really remember now, but it's been about seven weeks, almost um, six, seven weeks. Seven weeks. And the six so, what's and the schedule weeks. for the next three or four weeks? Well, so I did a scan, and it seems that um, it's pretty. All the healing's going pretty well and stuff. So I could probably race any time, but. Uh, I think we're gonna wait until the Italian classics. So I'll hopefully be starting again around like Giro della Emilia, um, and then hopefully going through Lombardia. So not a whole ton of racing, but maybe I'll get three or four days in there and uh, just get a nice sort of like um, yeah dabble back into racing before the off season. So uh, yeah, I'm just training hard, getting ready for those, and uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to pinning on a number again and hopefully getting into good shape uh, for the last races of the season. Have you been inspired by watching La Vuelta a España? Um, not really, to be honest. I mean, I'll be honest, when I was watching it today, I was like, oh, I kind of wish I was there. Like, that's fun. Uh, I like, you know, being at the end of a Grand Tour. It's a nice ambiance. It's a cool race. And uh, I mean, I wish I was able to do the whole Vuelta, you know. Um, so I wouldn't say that it motivated me, but it definitely, I definitely wished I was there, you know? I think I was in pretty good form before and uh, I would have just liked to, yeah, have the opportunity to race, you know, 21 stages and have some chances to, yeah, go for stage wins and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, it's a bit of a shame to miss out on that, but, uh, you know, that happens in cycling and hopefully, uh, you know, I'll be able to do some good races next year. Well, Larry, I can tell you, I'm pretty sure Richard Carapaz has just emerged from the Ineos Grenadiers bus behind me, and there was a stampede um, only previously seen in this part. Well, when I mentioned earlier the Katy Perry MTV Music Awards <laughs> performance in 2010, I can only imagine scenes that that day were similar to the scenes that I'm witnessing now. Quite extraordinary. Um, well, Larry. This and that chorus of Richard, Richard almost concludes not only this evening's entertainment, but this Welters and indeed this Grand Tour seasons from the Cycling Podcast point of view. But before we do disappear into the Madrid night, I want to express my thanks to a few people. 
also on behalf of Lionel, um, to our revolving cast of guests that together have given us a carousel of dreams for this Vuelta a España. <laughs> we started off on a Friday night with the Spanish journalists Nico Van Loy and our friend, the former Sky professional Ian Boswell. Unfortunately, that was the last time Ian could join us because he's been grieving the sudden and tragic death of his friend Sula Kangangi over the last two weeks. Um, I'd like to offer our condolences to Ian once again and also our thanks. We've also featured Dan Martin, or Dan Mar- Danny Martin, as we've called him, mid-biblical flood uh, at his home in Andorra on one particular Saturday. We've had the voice of cycling Rob Hatch. We've been blessed by our great Dane, Brian Nygaard's presence, and we've gazed wistfully with Fran Reyes. And most often of all, Larry, I think we've been privileged and delighted to host you. So for that and to all of the aforementioned guests, I will say thank you, Larry. Thank you, Daniel, and thanks uh, to all the listeners. It was really nice to be here uh, for, yeah, the last few weeks. It's been pretty cool. Thank you. And absolutely essential technical assistance has been provided to me by our producers, Tom Wally, Adam Bowie, in his case, including an emergency message at 1.30 a.m. yesterday. Also, Hugh Owen, John Mooney and Will Jones. So thank you to you all. We've been thrilled to... Richard, Richard. We've been thrilled to, to have offered, if not drunk, Greg Andrews of Divine Cellars Wine. And certainly not drunk it out of Stacey Snyder's beautiful mugs, because that would be heresy. To them, too, we are extremely grateful. And the same, of course, applies to our sponsors, Super Sapiens, Science in Sport and MAP. I would also like to hail the hard work behind the scenes of Lionel. And, oh God, Ecuador. I would, I would like to thank Ecuador, although they've had nothing to do with the production of this podcast. <laughs> I would like to hail the work behind the scenes of Lionel and David Luxton helping to keep the show on the road over the last three weeks. And finally, most importantly, I would like to thank you, our loyal listeners, to your, for your support, not only here at the Welter, but throughout what has been this most difficult year for us after Richard Moore's passing in March. I know that Richard would certainly echo that, and I can't help feeling that the, that chorus of Richard, Richard is somehow apt um, at this moment. So on that, Larry, it's a final thanks from me as I do head into the Madrid night to the rhythm of La Vuelta and maybe another dance-off. In fact, a rematch (laughs) um, with with Julien Alaphilippe if he's visiting Remco Evenepoel tonight. I don't know if he is back here, but if not, I'll find someone else to have a dance-off with. Larry, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Daniel. Have a good evening. Wish I was there. Thanks, mate. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Byrne.